Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. It's a familiar story. The story of a crowded house. Jesus dealing with people in the house. A lot of Pharisees in the house. And a person on a stretcher outside who can't make it in. So they figure if I can't get through the door, I'll go through the roof. The Bible says, and when Jesus saw their faith, He responded in a powerful way. The last Saturday of this month, as you know, we're going to be doing a seminar on the subject of healing, praying for the sick. I am more than 100% convinced that the Scripture teaches us that as we do outreach in the name of Jesus who has initiated the kingdom of heaven, that praying for the sick is just part of evangelism. Amen? Praying for the sick is just part of the package. In Mark 16, these signs shall follow them that believe. And one of the things that says, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. When we read through the book of Acts, how the disciples and the apostles functioned after the ascension of Jesus and after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, praying for the sick was obviously part of what they did. Acts chapter 3, the gate called Beautiful, a miracle happened there causing thousands of people to respond immediately to the gospel. And the book of Acts is full of stories like that. The gospels are full of stories like that. The gospels say that when Jesus would send his 12 disciples out on their mission trips, so to speak, he gave them authority over every unclean spirit and he gave them authority over all kind of sicknesses and disease. And he says, and when you go out, say that the kingdom of heaven has come and cleanse the lepers and give the blind their sight and the deaf their hearing, even went as far as to say, raise the dead. In the ministry of the kingdom, in the gospel of the kingdom, it is the power of God to save people from their sins, transform their hearts, and deliver them from the ill effects of sin upon their life freedom from demonic influences, freedom from oppression, freedom from disease, and so forth, the gospel we proclaim is a supernatural gospel. Amen? And it's our heart's intention to to move forward in that, and the Lord teach us how to do that. And that's my, my heart. But I I have a question for you today because this question, how we answer it, will really color the way we think about praying for the sick and about the exercise of miracles. And it's a question I think in these things. I don't know if you would think on these things, but I certainly think on these things. And I try to keep my ear to the ground as to what is being taught out there in the wider community 
a, a variety of different churches and all sorts of different flavors. And here's the question that I'm going to ask. When Jesus performed his miracles, when he walked on water, when he cleansed lepers, when he healed the sick, when he cast out demons, be careful how you answer this. Let me ask the question and, and don't volunteer an answer because you might get caught. When he did these things, did he do it because he was God who is deity and who is divine? Or did he do it as a man who laid aside all his divinity, leaned upon the Holy Spirit, and everything he did was a result of being led by the Spirit? Did he do it as God, or did he do it as a man dependent upon the Holy Spirit? Don't answer, because I just may trap you before you answer such a question. And it's an important question to answer. Because when you have your ear to the ground and when you hear a variety of things that are being taught from all sorts of different sources, one of the things that's become very common today is to have a school where you can train people to minister in the gifts of the Spirit. Schools where you teach people how to do miracles and how to exercise the laws of faith and how to cast out demons. To, and, and the idea is this. Everything that Jesus did was as a man anointed by the Spirit of God, then it is reason that if we are also anointed by the Spirit of God, we should be able to produce the same results. That's out there a lot, fairly frequently. And I would say this, that there's a lot of zeal in the body of Christ at large, but not necessarily a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of talk about in the last days, an Elijah generation will take over the earth that will display the raw power of God in a way that's never seen before in the world and will set the stage for Jesus coming back. It's very popular right now, that kind of thinking. I'm going to suggest that there's a fair amount of confusion out there. And I'm going to suggest that while there are elements of truth, there are also a fair amount of inconsistencies. Now, the entire subject of praying for the sick is a large topic, and it can be very confusing. It can be very, very confusing. And so when we do seminars on it, it's going to take more than one Saturday because the topic is extremely large and a lot of questions. How Jesus ministered healing to others is also can be quite confusing to look at it. But the debate over the nature of Jesus, whether he functioned as God or whether he functioned as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, is not a new discussion to our generation. As a matter of fact, those kinds of questions about the nature of Jesus were hammered out in the first three centuries after the resurrection and the ascension. What we call the early church fathers had to settle these kinds of questions because very quickly after the resurrection of Jesus, 
within a generation, a variety of heresies were invading the church at large. And the people that we refer back to as the church fathers had to deal with these in the first, second, and third centuries. And as they dealt with all of these things, they developed creeds that to this day in liturgical church services, a lot of these creeds are recited as part of their worship service. But a key issue that was discussed as was the nature of Jesus. How can he be both God, 100% God, and how can he at the same time be man, 100% man, without ever confusing the two? How could he have one consciousness and yet be conscious that he was God and be conscious that he was man How could he have two natures united in one being? There are some people who who said his physical body was really just an illusion and they denied his humanity. And there are other people who denied his divinity. And the early church fathers had to deal with all that kind of stuff. Uh, How could he have two natures and never confuse them and yet remain one person? Aren't you glad we're not discussing that issue today? Because that's heavy type of stuff. But these kinds of things were dealt with. But our question is this, that I want to explore. Did Jesus heal the sick and did he perform miracles by virtue of his deity? Or were these healings and these miracles the fruit of a spirit-filled man exercising his faith? And the reason that's important, because if the miracles he did were because he was God and he was deity and he was divine, then there's no way you and I are going to replicate them because we're not God. We can't do that. We can't imitate God. If they were accomplished as a result of him being spirit-filled in the exercise of faith, then potentially that's saying whatever Jesus did, we can do. Where's the truth? Where is the truth in that? Now, the difficulty for me as a teacher or as a pastor is that there have been consciously and unconsciously so many opinions given on this that has crept into a variety of teachings from every different source that when people read things, they actually don't know the foundation behind some of the things that are said. And the difficulty for me is to clear the path That's a big task. To clear the path that leads us to a healthy and a powerful expression of ministering in the miracle power of the kingdom of heaven while at the same time avoiding the pitfalls and the half-truths that will end up derailing and destroying well-intentioned people and they end up with a consuming frustration and deep disappointment that what they were taught doesn't work. That's the difficulty and the challenge that I have. It's a discussion that has to take place because if we're going to move in towards the expression of the kingdom of heaven, then we want to know where the truth is on these things. It is a common teaching today, very, very common, that says this. It says that when Jesus came into this world, Though he was God, he made a choice to lay aside his divinity 
to lay aside his deity, never use the resources that were available to him as being the Son of God, never tapped into his omniscience, that means he knows everything, never tapped into his omnipotence, which means God can do anything, never tapped into those things, but everything that Jesus did was as a model man who leaned on the Spirit. That is a very, very common uh, teaching by a lot of people today. If that premise is wrong and people follow it, then we are being set up for bitter disappointment. I ask the question, can people learn to heal the sick by attending a class? Can you learn to prophesy by attending a class? And my answer is, no, you can't. If you haven't got the gift, I have all the teaching in the world I can give you is not going to give you the gift. If you have the gift, then we can give you help and guidelines in expressing that gift, but I can't give you that gift. And just having a general course and say how to heal the sick, well, there may be some general principles but I can't cause any people, any person, just walk in a miracle ministry because we have a class how to walk in the supernatural. That just doesn't happen, though it is often taught. It's taught that if you can just know the laws of the spiritual world, if you got the right information, if you have the right consecration, you've got the right zeal, the desire, and if you can learn the laws of faith, then you too can just do miracles at your discretion. I have a little problem with that. I don't know if you noticed that, but I do have a problem with that. Where is all the truth in this? Because I believe the Bible teaches that it is God who distributes the gifts as he sees fit. Not me. I'm not the distributor of gifts. I cannot impart a gift from me to you. If God doesn't give it to you, all the imparting in the world I will try to do will never happen. God is the one who imparts the gifts. God is the one who distributes the gifts. And the thing is, we want to press in to the Holy Spirit doing these things in our behalf because I tell you what, there is a lost and unredeemed world out there that desperately needs to know the deliverance power of a resurrected Christ. Amen? And yet we don't want to get it wrong as we pursue this. So let's try to clear the path of some thinking and Mark chapter 2 is going to be our beginning. You know what that story is. Now, in this story, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, Jesus demonstrates his ability to forgive sin. Now, everybody in the story knows that only God can forgive sin. Is that correct? Only God can forgive sin. Only God can absolve it. Only God can give eternal forgiveness. The Pharisees who opposed Jesus know that. The people who witnessed this event know that. And Jesus knows that. So when Jesus says to this man, your sins be forgiven you, I ask you the question, is that God speaking or is that a man speaking? See, you, you took me seriously. Don't give me any answers. 
Is that God speaking or is that a man speaking? The obvious answer is only God can say such a thing. Only God can do such a thing. And then to prove that he had the power to forgive sin, he turned to the paralyzed man. He said, rise up, take your bed and walk. He did not appeal to his heavenly father to do the healing. He did not ask for a higher power to come on him to do a miracle. He did it by virtue of who he was. And by doing so, by saying, I forgive sin, and to prove that I forgive sin, I, by virtue of my own person, cause you to be healed of that sickness and that disease. By doing so, Jesus was making a claim, and everybody in that room understood what that claim was. He was claiming that in spite of what you saw, that that man was God incarnate. He did it as God. His own essence as God the Son. So in this one story anyway, this particular miracle is an indication that Jesus healed the sick because he was God come in the flesh. Not just a man anointed by the Spirit, but as God, he brought about that particular miracle. There's a lot of times in the Gospels where Jesus received worship and did not condemn anybody for doing that. So if he received worship, was he a man or was he God? Obviously, he has to be God because to worship anything else is is blasphemous. And there's a one time when the rich young ruler tried to worship him and Jesus stopped it because the rich young ruler was worshiping him as a man who had been enlightened. What have I got to do to get to the spiritual height like you do? He says, wrong, wrong story, man. But when he healed people and they worshipped... Remember in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind? Remember that? And he was healed. And in the conversation after, you know, well, who are you? You know, well, He says, well, who is the Lord? And, and Jesus said, I am the Lord. And he worshipped him. And the man worshipped Jesus. And there's a variety of instances of people coming to Jesus and worshipping him, which means that they understood that he was God. How many miracles were designed in the Gospels to the point to the true identity of who Jesus was? Did people see a man? Some people only saw a man. Or did the miracles function as signs to a deeper revelation that Jesus was actually God the Son? When Jesus stopped the storm on the sea, remember that story? He was asleep in the boat and he stopped it. And then all the disciples said this, Who is this? What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And if we know our Old Testaments well, we would know this, that there's only one person who has authority over wind and the sea, and that's God himself. And that was an indication that Jesus was not just the man, that Jesus was God. And that whole story of him calming the sea was to remind them of the story in the Old Testament of the Exodus where God caused a great wind to blow and divide the Red Sea. And they were learning that Jesus is the same person as they would read about in the old story in the book of Exodus. That Jesus is that person. There's a revelation of who he is and that he is God. And you know in that story in Matthew's version, 
it says they worshipped him. And Jesus received worship because of that display of power. Now, how about the demons? Did they know who Jesus was? Did they say, oh, we're scared of you. You're a man anointed by the Spirit. That's not what they said. The demons said, we know who you are. You are the Son of God. Have you come to destroy us before the time? They knew who Jesus was. John chapter 2 and verse 11. Let's turn there for a second. The Gospel of John chapter 2 and verse 11. The first miracle that Jesus did, turning water into wine. Listen to the comment that John would make after Jesus turned water into wine. Chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, now listen to this, and manifested His glory. Manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed on Him. John's interpretation of that miracle was that it wasn't just a miracle, it was something that revealed the identity of the miracle worker. Manifested His glory. Back in chapter 1 and verse 14 of John, uh, John had said this, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says in chapter 1, 14, And we beheld His glory. And what glory did we behold? The glory of the only begotten of the Father. And then when Jesus does that first miracle of turning water into wine, He says that was our first glimpse of the glory of the Son of God. So that begs the question then, when Jesus turned water into a wine, was that a man anointed by the Spirit who did that, or was that God in the flesh revealing His glory? Interesting questions, isn't it? How do we deal with these things? According to John, it was an expression of his deity that Jesus possessed in his own person. Jesus did not manifest the glory of the Spirit. He did not manifest the glory of the Father, but he manifest his own glory when he turned water into wine. All the way through John's Gospel, listen to some of the claims that Jesus would make. In chapter 5.17, he says, I work with my Father. He works and I work together with him. Jesus would make the claim that whatever the Father does, I do. I only do what I see my Father do. He claims that He has the same power as the Father, even to the point that Jesus can raise the dead. Even He, out of His own essence. As a matter of fact, He says in the Gospel of John, I'll raise Myself from the dead. I have power to lay it down, and I've got power to take it back up. Do you know any man who can raise himself from the dead after he's dead? He says, I can raise myself up from the dead. Is that a man talking? Or is that God talking? Which is, well, the answer to that is, you can answer that one. It's an obvious one. Only God can make such a claim. Then he offers proof of his ability to do that by raising Lazarus from the dead. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he did not ask the Father to do it for him. He did not ask the Holy Spirit to quicken it. He just did it himself. 
Because why? He is the resurrection. And He is the life. And because He is those things in His essence, He has the power to do that. Anointed or not anointed by the Spirit makes no difference. The Son of God is God the Son, and He is eternal deity, and He has the power to do whatever He wants to do with or without the help of the Holy Spirit. Would that be correct? What do you think? Now you're scared to answer, aren't you? Can a mere man offer to answer the prayers? He said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it for you. Is that a man talking? Or is that God talking? When Jesus says, I'm going to give you water, living water, comes for me and you'll never thirst again. Is that a promise a man can give? Or is it a promise that only God can give? So the question is, was Jesus acting as a man anointed by the Spirit? And we can duplicate that if we're anointed by the Spirit. Or did he did those things because he was God? But let's flip the coin here and let's look at the other scriptures that would suggest he was a man anointed by the Spirit. Those would be Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Preach the gospel to the poor, open the eyes of the blind, heal the brokenhearted, set the captives free to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Matthew 12:28. he says, If I by the Spirit of God cast out demons then you know that the kingdom of heaven has come. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. And people would latch on to those scriptures and say everything that Jesus did was not by his deity or divinity, but he was a man who knew how to walk in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. How do we reconcile Now, here's what the early church fathers had to deal with. How do we reconcile the humanity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, all wrapped up in the flesh? How do we reconcile those things? When it comes to the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus, it's going to be very, very important to understand how to work our way through this clearly, that the role of the Holy Spirit to Jesus is a different role than what the Holy Spirit has with us. I'll say that again because that is a key point. The role the Holy Spirit has to do with Jesus is a different role than what the Holy Spirit has with us. Should I say it a third time? The role the Holy Spirit has with Jesus is a different role than he has with us. There are certain things that are similar, but there are a variety of differences. The Old Testament prophets gave a sign by which when the true Messiah would arrive, there was a sign that you would know who the Messiah was. Because in the history of Israel, there were all kinds of messiahs that would rise up. I'm the Messiah. And they're usually military figures and they would go to war and they get, you know, a third of the nation running after them sometime and all sorts of movements, people claiming to be the Messiah. 
But the prophet Isaiah especially, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, over and over and over again it was said this, you will know who the Messiah is because He's the one upon whom the Spirit would descend and would remain on Him. The Spirit would be poured out upon this one person without measure. And that's how you will know who the Messiah is. So the coming of the Spirit upon Jesus at the Jordan River was God indicating to the world who the Messiah is. That's the role of the Spirit in the life of Jesus is to affirm Him as the Messiah. Now, when we read about the Spirit coming upon Jesus, does that imply that Jesus, His deity, had to be inactive? When the Spirit came upon Him, does that mean that Jesus no longer used His own resources as being God the Son to do whatever He did? Because the Spirit came upon Him, and through that God identifies Him as the Messiah, does that mean that Jesus had no resource to His own ability? And the answer to that would be obviously no, but it is often taught. If the power that came from Jesus, the knowledge that came from Jesus, the wisdom that came from Jesus, if it never, ever, ever originated out of His own being, but was purely from the leading of the Holy Spirit, then the legitimate question has to be asked, how does that mean that Christ is God manifest in the flesh? Because if I can show the power through my life, if I can from time to time show the wisdom and the knowledge of God through the gifts of the Spirit through my life, that's, I can't say I'm God manifest in the flesh. Can I? Of course not. For God to be manifest in the flesh, Jesus had to do these things out of His own essence, out of who He, he was Himself. So the question is, what role did, does the Holy Spirit have in the life and the ministry of Jesus? Just because He took on human flesh did not mean He ceased being God the Son. There is a, a phrase out there that's being, becoming more common. I don't know if you would hear this, and probably not, unless you read the right books or hear the right people, or you dig beneath the surface of what people write. There's a, 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 what's called spirit Christology. Have you ever heard of that? Spirit Christology. If you want to get fancy, it's uh, pneumatic Christology. That's just a Greek word. But spirit Christology can mean two different things. The first thing it can mean is this, is that after Jesus was resurrected and ascended, then he came back immediately on the day of Pentecost, and the outpoured Holy Spirit is Jesus in another form. That is called modalism, if you want to get into technical words, and it is rejected by every scholar imaginable. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. They are distinct from each other as different members of the Godhead, and Jesus just didn't change form and come back in the person of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus and the Holy Spirit are two different people. And so that is what some people call spirit Christology. Or the other side of spirit Christology is what we've already been saying. The view is that, that when Jesus lived on earth as a man, that he purposely laid aside his divine prerogatives and he functioned in ministry solely by dependence on the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit, never used his own deity as God the Son, never took knowledge out of himself, always 100% depend upon the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and do everything. And as such, then, he can be replicated. Though this view is extremely common, the fact is that most scholars reject that as being viable. I'll go show you, for instance, when Jesus healed the sick. And this is why it's going to take more than one Saturday to deal with the topic of praying for the sick. I want to show you five differences between the way Jesus ministered to the sick and the way the church forever after has ministered to the sick. Five differences, five very notable differences. The first one is Jesus healed all and everyone that ever came to him. 100% success. He healed everybody, all that came to him. In the Gospels, you don't see one failure, ever. When you get to the epistles, the story is different. Paul himself was sick. Galatians 4.13 You know how through infirmity of the flesh I came to you, he says to the Galatians. He would say this in Philippians 2, 25 to 27, uh, without looking, I think it's Epaphroditus, he says, I left him at Miletus sick. As a matter of fact, he was very close to death. Now you're talking from an apostle who was given a signs and wonders miracle ministry. You're talking, this, these are the words of somebody who knows what it is to raise the dead. This is somebody who knows how to cast out demons. This is somebody who knows how to throw snakes off that attach them into the fire. This is a miracle man. And this miracle ministry said, I left someone sick at that city and he was so close to death. I left them there. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.20 also talks about somebody that Paul left sick. Jesus got them all healed. Paul didn't. Another difference is this. Jesus never asked God the Father to heal. He always did it directly himself. Out of his own power, out of his own virtue, out of his own nature, he touched somebody. He never prayed. He never said, well, let me pray about it. He never said, Father, would you do it? He didn't say, Holy Spirit, would you come upon this person? He directly did it every time himself. That's not the case in the rest of the New Testament. I don't know about you, but I've got to pray about it. We have to lift people up in prayer. A third difference is Jesus never related sickness to sin. Never. That's different in the epistles. Some, now I have to be careful because people can hear this the wrong way, but some sickness is related to sin. And you get that in James chapter 5, you get that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Another difference is that Jesus never said sickness ever has uh, spiritual value in someone's life. When you get to the epistles, sometimes sickness does have spiritual value. 1 Corinthians 11.32 would say that. In the miracles of Jesus, another difference is that his healings had a teaching function, as we already saw, through his miracles, 
his deity was becoming known to people. His glory was being manifest. I don't know about you, but I've got no deity to manifest. And so there's a variety of differences the way the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the church that follows him. There is differences. So obviously, (laughs) this topic of praying for the sick is a deep topic. It needs to be explored. There's many angles to look at it. And it's going to take more than just a few sessions. But why is there a difference? And here's the big difference. It's because Jesus had a different commission to fulfill than what you and I have to fulfill. The Jesus of the Gospels had a different mission to fulfill than the mission that you and I have been given. The ministry of Jesus was to reveal himself as the long-promised Messiah. And it was going to be the presence of the Spirit in his life and upon him that would vindicate him before the eyes of the entire world. His commission was very different. And if his commission, if our commission is different than his, then it would not be a 100% true thing to say that we're to be replicating everything that Jesus did. It has often been taught or inferred that when Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him in the form of a dove, that somehow Jesus was now able to do things that previously he could not have done. Only after Jordan was he able to do certain things that he couldn't do prior. It's almost as if Jesus did not have access to or he chose not to use any of his divine powers and that as a man he was totally, utterly unable to heal the sick. And yet that's not true because when you read through the Gospels, there are many miracles that says the miracle happened not because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, but because of the inherent nature of who Jesus was. Luke 4.36, they cried out, What new authority is this? This man has this ability. People reached out to touch the hem of his garment. They were touching Jesus. They were not touching the anointing. They weren't touching the Spirit. They were touching the person of Jesus. And here's the question. Do you think that Jesus had no power before he was baptized at the Jordan River? You think the Spirit was uninvolved in the life of Jesus before the baptism at the Jordan River? Was it that he was a man before that and after he was baptized, now he was a a superman? The question is this. If he was powerless before that baptism, then how do you explain the fact that he lived a perfectly sinless life? Obviously, he wasn't powerless. Now, if he is a member of the Godhead, if Jesus is God the Son, then it would stand to reason that at no time in his history could he ever be separated from God the Father or God the Spirit. Are they not intertwined for all eternity? And when Jesus became man, his relationship with the Holy Spirit certainly was not cut off. He was as much God when he was 12 years of age, when he was 15, when he was 20, when he was 25, when he was 30, 
All those years, the Holy Spirit was with Jesus. When Jesus had that experience at the Jordan River, it's not because he didn't have the Spirit. It was because God was saying, this is the sign that I gave to the world. This man is the Messiah. And the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus was to vindicate him as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the one who initiates the kingdom of heaven, as the one who brings the redemption. It does not mean that Jesus was powerless before this happened. It was the promised sign. As a matter of fact, the scriptures teach, the gospel teach, the relationship of Jesus to the Spirit is that Jesus is the one who will confer the Spirit upon other people. When John the Baptist preached, he says, I baptize you with water, but this one will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. In other words, from John the Baptist's point of view, the Spirit is not supporting Jesus. From the point of view of John the Baptist, Jesus is Lord even over the Spirit. Let's cast the significance that. It's not that the Spirit is supporting Jesus. It's that Jesus is Lord even over the Spirit. Jesus is identified as the Messiah. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61... This is how the public ministry of Jesus was set in motion. When God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to His Son, God the Son, at the Jordan River, it was to publicly affirm and to accredit Jesus as the Messiah. He was testifying, this is my Son. And then for the first time in history, it would be seen that the Holy Spirit in all his fullness, was going to be addicted to one person. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit, in all his fullness, was going to be addicted or attracted to one person. And people are going to say, who is this man that even the Holy Spirit is subject to him? Who is this man that the Spirit walks with him and leads him and guides him and empowers him and accredits him? It is to give testimony as to who Jesus is. The fact is this, Jesus is Lord of the Spirit. Amen. The Spirit was given to Him, and He is Lord over the Spirit, and He will confer the Spirit on whoever He will. When it says that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit, that does not mean that the Spirit was controlling Jesus. Rather, it means this that Jesus used the power of the Spirit as he saw fit to use that power. In other words, the Holy Spirit offered his services to Jesus to be used by Jesus at his discretion. He is Lord of the Spirit. It can be said that he received divine affirmation as to his identity, that Jesus is now legitimized in the eyes of the world as the one who will initiate the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because his own worth of who he is warrants him walking with the Spirit and the Spirit walking with him. The two are always as one. When it says the Scriptures that Jesus was led into the Spirit, into the wilderness, it's because the Holy Spirit goes before Jesus to prepare things for him. It's the forerunner of Jesus. Organizing 
ahead of Jesus the agenda fulfill his role as the Messiah. What's interesting in the wilderness is that Jesus will demonstrate he has total authority over the enemy even before his ministry begins. Now, I like that. Total authority over the enemy even before his public ministry even commences. And when he dealt with the devil in the wilderness, even though the Spirit led him there and set up the agenda for him to walk into the role of Jesus as Messiah, he did not overcome the enemy through the power of the Holy Spirit. He overcame the enemy through using the Scripture. That's an important principle. He overcame the enemy through using the Scripture. And he also let the devil know this, that he was the Lord God. It wasn't just a man that the devil was tempting, because in responding to him, Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It wasn't just a man in there being tempted. The Satan was attempting to tempt God himself. And Jesus calls himself the Lord God. When it says that Jesus came out of the wilderness full of the Spirit, that does not mean that he was ruled by the Spirit. But what it does mean is that he operated in the full realm of the Spirit and with the full power of the Spirit as his disposal. The message the Gospel writers intend to convey is this. Such a person with whom the Spirit walks should be followed by everybody. Jesus has always been supreme, but that public affirmation with the Spirit given to him for Jesus to be Lord of that Spirit and to direct the activity of the Spirit and confer the Spirit is the sign that he is who he is. He is God the Son. He was just as much God the Son before as after, and he had just as much power before as after. The Spirit is the divine marker that Jesus is worthy and He is authentic. And that's how His public ministry begins. So in practical terms, how do we make application out of that to ourselves? I think the answer to that is quite simple. Now, be careful how you hear what I'm about to say because I don't want you to misunderstand it. And here's what I'm saying. The church has not, N-O-T, has not inherited Jesus' anointing to use at its own discretion as if we could replicate it. I'm not here to prove to you that I'm the Messiah. I have a different agenda. The purpose of the Holy Spirit with me is different than the purpose of the Holy Spirit with Jesus. Supernatural ministry is not attained by learning the right laws of how to penetrate the invisible spirit realm. The more biblical and the more correct way of saying this is like this, that the risen Jesus, the ascended Jesus, continues his redemptive activity as the Lord of the Spirit through the gifts that he bestows in his church. He confers the Spirit. He confers the gifts. He's the one who is in control. Christ is still Lord of the Spirit. Amen. And He gives the gifts as He sees fit. He directs their use as He sees fit. 
No man can give you any spiritual gift. Even though that has become common, is get up here and get you some, as if I could lay hands on you and impart onto you some spiritual gift. And after I lay hands on you, you have the ability to go heal the sick. Utter nonsense. But it is common and it is taught and it is very popular, but it is as unbiblical as you can get. Jesus is the one who distributes the gifts as he sees fit. If he doesn't give you the gift, all the laying hands in the world from me to you or all the teaching I can give you in the world isn't going to give you the gift. It has to be received from the Lord of the Spirit. So I'm not in charge of which gift I receive. I can ask, I can seek, but ultimately Jesus is the one who is in charge. He's the director of the ministry. Every display of power as we go out to do outreach is always this. God gives the initiative and we walk with Him. The initiative is not up to me to direct God how about to do the ministry. It's His work, it's His church, and He directs it as He sees fit. So my experience, your experience with the Spirit is not identical to Jesus' experience of the Spirit, but it is comparable. There's a lot of things that we can learn and glean for sure. But the right attitude to take is this. God has got a call on your life. Every believer is called into some form of ministry. Every believer is a member of the body of Christ. And every believer is to be anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit, not to replicate everything that Jesus did, because you can't be the Messiah. Not to replicate everything that Jesus did, but instead, so you can fulfill your individual God-given gift and objective with the same help of the same Spirit who partnered with Jesus. Now, that's good news. That's good news. God has got a call on your life, and He wants to divinely enable you. So my goal is not to replicate Jesus. My goal is to do and fulfill the gift that He's given me. And the same Spirit that worked with Jesus, works with you, and works with me. We're to be sent out in kingdom ministry. Reaching others with the power of the kingdom is the agenda for outreach. But Jesus is the Lord of the church. And He is the Lord of the Spirit. And He directs His own affairs. Very important principle. Jesus even made this promise. And you and I like this promise. John 14, 12-14 says, Greater works than these shall you do. And we're going to go greater works. What could be greater than raising Lazarus from the dead? What could be greater than walking on water? What could be greater? When he says greater works, what does that mean? I think it means this, because two verses right after, he talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the presence of the Spirit is the distinguishing feature of this promise. How can these works be greater? I think the answer to that question is this. When Jesus was personally on earth, the power of the Holy Spirit was centered in one physical body, in one man. 
Now that He is ascended, He's the conferrer of the Spirit. He's the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And now the ministry of the Spirit is now spread through a corporate body of believers in the context of the entire globe. It's spread around. Because now we are members of the body of Christ. And one member of the body can't do everything that the whole body does. And that's the difference between Jesus and us. He was the whole body. You and I aren't. And therefore, we can't replicate everything that Jesus did, but we have our part as He is the Lord of the Spirit. Paul puts it this way, and with this I close. Uh, Romans 15, verses 18 and 19. When he talked about his miracle ministry amongst the Gentiles, he would say this, these great and mighty works is Christ doing the works. It's not me. It's not me learning to have faith. It's not me learning to have spiritual laws that I've conquered and, and I learn how to cooperate with these spiritual laws. No, no, no. A thousand times no. Paul said, it's Christ who does these works. And how does he do it? Through the agency of the Holy Spirit that was given to Paul. Very simple. Christ does the works, not you and I. So, what's our role? How do we move forward? How do we press in? The answer is really simple. You know where God dwells? In brokenness. We want revival that's not the result of learning laws of the Spirit. We want revival that comes because of humility. Brokenness before God. Our role is to continue to pray. Jesus taught concerning these things. You pray, and you pray, and you persevere in prayer, and you persevere in prayer, and you persevere in prayer. You ask, you seek, you knock, and you persevere in prayer. And you are broken before God, and you're humble before God. Our role is to pray. Our role is to be humble. Our role is to learn to hear His voice. Our role is to learn to obey His voice. Our role is to recognize that He is Lord, even of the Spirit. He's God. He's God. And if we follow with that understanding, then we can plow into these things in safety, in understanding, and we can avoid the many pitfalls on the right side and the left side that cause moves of God to self-destruct after three, four, or five years. They self-destruct because they were built on wrong premises. I got good news. Jesus is God. Amen. Jesus is God. And He never, ever lost being God even when He ministered in the flesh. He was God manifest in the flesh. The Spirit was given to him to, con to be conferred upon others, to affirm him as the long-awaited Messiah. The Spirit had never, ever separated from Jesus. At his birth, the Spirit was there organizing the whole thing, supervising the whole thing. Jesus was never without the Spirit. He's publicly affirmed to be the Messiah. And now he initiates us. He began the work of the kingdom.
And now he wants us to fulfill and complement it until he comes. God's good.